As we are going to move now into our uh, study for this morning in this hour of worship, I just want to extend my welcome also to all of you who are here. Um, We have a full house this morning. It's outstanding. We keep having to tear more and more pieces of tape to make room for folks. And maybe, just maybe, the time is approaching in the near future where that can be removed entirely. It's just really nice to see everybody here. Um, We have some visitors with us this morning, as we're often blessed to do, and uh, very glad to have you here. If you're traveling through, we thank you for for worshiping with us this morning and and pray that God will give you safe travels to your destination. If you are from this area, um, uh, and particularly if you are are looking for a a congregation of God's people to worship with and to become a part of, uh, I imagine you might have some questions about this congregation here, and we would gladly make the time to, to answer those for you. If you have a few minutes afterwards, please stick around. Let us talk to you. Um, If you don't, but you still want to talk, we can certainly set up an appointment. Um, COVID safe, either through a phone call or or FaceTime or Skype or something like that. Or we can meet in person uh, over a table, a cup of coffee, whatever, whatever works for you, really. We'd love to get to talk with you about serving the Lord and what we can do to be of assistance to you in doing that. Um, It's good to get to have the Pulfers back with us. After a long stretch with COVID, now that the, both Kevin and Michelle have gotten their, their vaccine, they get to be out. We're glad to have all four of you here. And um, my only regret is I'm no longer teaching the, the class for the, the young kids now. I think that's the one Jared has. Jared, is that your age group now? Okay. And yeah, Jared's, Jared's got the, the class that I enjoyed. And, um, well, we'll have to eventually work something out about that. I miss it already. Um, believe it or not. Believe it or not, because my kids are in that class too, but I, I still miss it. Um, to completely change subjects, to get this lesson started, uh, and kind of change mental gears to something honestly just tragic. Um, on Tuesday of this week, if you had your news on much at all this week, I imagine you saw that down in Atlanta, nine people were shot in a series of shootings in the city that left one of those nine critically injured, at least last I saw, um, and the other eight of them dead. It's become tragically and and sickeningly um, commonplace every few weeks, it seems, to hear about another mass shooting in some part of our country. Um... And tragically, along with that, the cadence of events has become familiar. You find out through the news, through the radio, what have you, that there's an active shooter situation somewhere. And slowly information begins to trickle out about the the suspected number of casualties. At some point, usually pretty soon, the shooter is taken into custody, either alive or dead. And then the responses begin to pour in usually in the form of either tweets of outrage over the violence and the loss of life or tweets of condolences for those who are victims of the violence. Those responses themselves usually take a couple of predictable forms. Um, In the comments expressing outrage, there are usually calls for, for greater gun control and gun reform in the country. In the tweets of condolences and sympathy... You will have public and political figures alike offer oftentimes their thoughts and prayers to the families of the victims. 
As some of you may have seen in recent years, that phrase, thoughts and prayers, has become something of a a firebrand, igniting all sorts of controversy whenever it is mentioned in the wake of the latest violence. Uh, For example, going all the way back to December of 2015, when there was the terrorist attack and mass shooting in San Bernardino, California, that left 14 people dead and 22 injured. Um, Since that was an election year, several of the various presidential candidates offered and requested prayers for the families of the victims, uh, for the first responders, for aid as they were dealing with that situation. In response to those statements expressing prayers for the various people that were affected by those awful killings, there was a newspaper editorial about those requests for prayer in the New York Daily News. You may have seen the the cover of this newspaper. It said, God isn't fixing this. You might have seen this reported online or on TV. God isn't fixing this. And a number of editorials were written in that same issue and in a variety of other publications, uh, be they printed or digital, One of the writers in this particular publication said, prayers aren't working. Now, I have no interest in pursuing this subject at the moment, or honestly, it's just my inclination in general, from a political standpoint. But obviously, as a Christian, I find myself quite interested in in things like this, in headlines like this, that continue to come up from time to time. God isn't fixing this. Your thoughts and prayers aren't working. Thoughts and prayers aren't what we need. They're not effective. So I I find myself as as a Christian interested in this kind of heading, not to mention the comments that were made in this particular editorial and that come from time to time, following more acts of of brutal violence when people are responding to it in much the same way and kind of continuing this, this, this argument. Because there are some assumptions, both in this headline and the article, and and in subsequent pieces that have been written in response to other shootings since then, that I would like to address. I think there are assumptions that betray a a fundamental misunderstanding about who God is, about how God works, and about what the purpose of prayer is. And so I'd like to talk about some of those assumptions with you this morning. And I think the first... Perhaps most obvious assumption of this headline and the editorial within and others like it since is this supposed false choice that it presents that says when there is a problem, either God fixes it, which is to say we pray to him and we ask him to fix it and he fixes it, or we can fix something of our own by taking our own initiative and action. There's a stark, and, and, and the idea is that there is a stark and clear difference between when God does something and when we do something. And we can either pray to God and ask Him to sort this out, or, or we can exert our own effort, and that's how we solve this problem. The editorial specifically contrasted offering prayers instead of action. Now, you had two kind of categories in in those who would object to this, at least as far as I saw. Those that said that either, you know, prayers aren't working. Prayers aren't going to solve this. We have to solve this. Prayer is ineffective. It's not doing anything. 
And then others who said, listen, pray all you want. That's just fine. But we've also got to act. And as I said, I have no interest in discussing this from a political standpoint, and I'm not going to get into any of that. But this particular choice of either, you know, you can offer your thoughts and prayers or you've got to do it. Either God fixes it or we fix it. It's a false choice for at least a couple of reasons. In the first place, it makes the assumption that if we are doing something about a problem, then God isn't. If you're trying to help something, then then God is not involved. Either we do it or he does it. So God is not fixing this problem of shootings. He's not fixing the problem of radical terrorism. He's not fixing the the problem of violence uh, along uh, uh, racist uh, um, thinking and whatnot. And so therefore, prayer is pointless. God's not doing anything, so we need to take action. I want to suggest to you that betrays a false picture of God. You may have heard the idea of the, um, I forget if it's the absent or the silent watchmaker, uh, the book that came out a a long time ago. It it reflects the belief that some folks have that God is this giant watchmaker in heaven. And creation is the watch. God made the watch. He wound up the watch. And then he's just let it run. And he sits back and he watches. Maybe every now and then he might interfere. He might tinker around with it. But for the most part, he's just letting creation do its own thing. He's made stuff and he's sat back and it's just wheels in motion. If that is what you believe about God, it is a very short step from that idea to saying, you know, Once the watchmaker makes the watch and he winds it up and he lets it start running, for all we know, he could kill over and die. But the watch would keep ticking along, at least there for a while. So there's really no need for the watchmaker at all. And the next step then is just to believe, well, as far as I'm concerned, there really just, you know, there is no watchmaker to be thinking about or to be bothering with God. Not only is he not really involved, he's just, he's not even here at all. God is dead. So it is a very easy, slippery slope. Um, And if you find that startling or striking to believe, I'm very thankful that you don't know anybody who's taken this progression of thought to kind of ease themselves into atheism. And go from this sort of view of God, of God's there, but he doesn't really care, to, uh, you know, he just doesn't really matter at all. And then to the belief that he doesn't even exist. This, of course, is not what the Bible says about God's relationship to the world. In fact, it is one of the things that Paul points out to the philosophers in Athens. Um, As you can see, if you'd like to join me in Acts chapter 17, I'll also have the scriptures on the screen for you as well. He even says some of your philosophers know better than this. So when he speaks to the philosophers in Athens in Acts chapter 17, he says in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God 
and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. So you see that what Paul says in this passage is not just simply that God made the heavens and he made the earth and that's it. What he said is that as creator in God, we, present tense, live and move and have our being. So the proper way to understand what the Bible says about God as creator is not simply that he made it and then just let it go. It is that from moment to moment he sustains what he brought into existence. So that if God were to withdraw himself from the creation that he's made, it would cease to be. Over and over the Bible talks about the present sustaining guardianship that God has over what he's created. In Hebrews chapter 1, one of the things it says about Jesus is this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And listen to this. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe. Present tense. So it must be said that at least from a biblical point of view. This is not a matter of God creating the world and then just basically saying, all right, it's good to go. You're on your own. Now, all analogies, all illustrations break down at some point when you're talking about God. Um, But perhaps a far more accurate picture of God than than God as an absent watchmaker. Uh, Perhaps a far more accurate picture of God's relation to creation would be something more like a, a musician and the music he makes. So if you think about someone who plays the violin, as long as the musician is playing, then there's going to be music. What happens when the musician stops? The music stops. One way you could describe God and his actions with regard to creation is is what we sometimes call the laws of nature. You might think of as the normal line of melody that God plays. But every now and then he improvises and goes against that kind of natural order and steps in and works what we refer to in Scripture as miracles. But all of it relies on Upon not only him making the violin, but him playing the violin. It relies not just on God initially creating us and creating the universe around us, but sustaining it moment by moment. At least that's certainly what the scriptures claim. So then, to imagine that if if God's not doing anything, well, I guess we've got to do it. Because that means he's not up to anything is to completely miss the point about the God of the Bible. Because of of what we believe about the God of the Bible, there's none of us that could ever do anything, none of us who could ever take any action without His constant sustaining provision, even of just the fact that you exist. There is another thing, though, that I think is significant about the assumptions that are made with that particular headline with regard to God's work and, and ours. And that is that it assumes that prayer isn't really work. That prayer isn't really a meaningful action. Because the choice is either we pray to God and he fixes it, or we take things into our own hands and we get things done. Do you see that juxtaposition? 
That's not how the Bible looks at prayer. Now, the Bible does certainly look at prayer by saying, listen, if you're going to pray for something and you have the ability to do something about that for which you pray, then you'd best do it. No sense saying to someone, boy, I sure hope you can, can, can find a meal and not provide it for them. Don't say to them, go your way and be filled when you could fill their stomach. Now, again, I have no interest in the politics of the gun control aspect of all this. I'm not trying to talk about that. But the idea that, yes, if you're going to pray for something, you can do some action towards it that you ought to take that. Whatever that action may be in that particular instance, I agree with that wholeheartedly. The scriptures do as well. But this idea that either we pray to God and he fixes it, or we take work into our own hands and we get things done as if prayer is not work, as if prayer is not something. That's not how the Bible looks at, at, at prayer. Uh, in James chapter 5, James talks about what prayer is. You may remember the illustration that he gives there in James chapter 5. First of all, he talks about the need for prayer when you're sick and when you've committed sin. And he says in verse 16 of James 5, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess and pray that you may be healed. He said back up in verse 14, If anyone is sick, call for the elders. They can pray. And anoint him. In verse 15. He says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. So question. And I don't see Jared at the moment. I think he's back there manning the computer. Yes he's just sitting down. Because he's our, our residential answer for this particular question. It's his favorite. Question for you. Was it the prayer that saved the sick man? Or was it God that saved the sick man. Jared, what's the answer? Yes. Yes. Do you see from the verses that we're reading that that's actually a ridiculous question to ask? Which one was it? It's not an either or question. It's not God saves them or prayer saves them. It's God saving him. And we go to God and pray to him and ask him to save him. It's not an alternative. It's not either or. It's both and. And after James talks about this, he illustrates it in verse 16. He says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He means Elijah was a person just like you. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. So the idea that prayer isn't action. That it's either you pray to God and hope he does something about it or you act. James says that's false. He says the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. Now why? Because it is faith in the God who has all power. And you're asking the God who sustains us moment by moment and who has all power to act in his creation and to do something. And to go a little bit further, I'd ask you this. To those who belittle the idea of going to God in prayer, those who think God's not doing anything, so we've just got to take matters into our own hands, may I take just a moment to ask the question, just how good a job has humanity done by ignoring God and taking matters into their own hands to try to solve their problems? How well has that worked out? Now, I'm not saying we don't have work to do. Of course we do. 
But to say it's either one or the other, it's either we pray to God and he does it or we do it. To say prayer doesn't work, so we've got to do it. How well has that worked out? At least by my judgment, not very well. So I'm honestly not very impressed with this particular mindset that says, forget God, we got to get this done. I think a lot of the problems we face as a society are precisely the result of that kind of thinking. Thinking that I can somehow exclude God, I can ignore the creator of this world, I can ignore what he has to say, and somehow make the world he made a better place without him. The Bible says prayer is powerful. And the reason it's powerful is because it goes to the throne of the God who is all-powerful. And it's absurd to think that any of us can do anything without his continual, moment-by-moment guardianship of what he's made. And that's why when the Bible speaks of God's working, it sometimes talks about God working through us. So in Ephesians 3, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. And that is one of those verses you can just make a whole sermon about, because the preacher, can, if he's the type, can just rear back and take 20-some minutes just emphasizing each single word. Not only can God do Not only can God do abundantly, not only can he do more abundantly, he can do far more abundantly. It preaches. So Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work. Notice this. Within us. I thought it was either God or us. It's God working in us. it's the God who is able to do far more than I'll ever be able to comprehend who is working in you. That's what Paul says we're accomplishing in in prayer. It's our faith in the action of God, and it is our act of faith that leads us to pray. Now, yeah, a lot of times that act of faith in prayer needs to be followed up by actions beyond just prayer. But that particular assumption, I I, I think, is, is evident in this idea that God isn't fixing this. And thoughts and prayers won't do. That seems to be what is basically assumed by this headline. Is the idea that, that um, you know, prayers aren't working. But something else that I think is assumed within it as well. Is that God is obligated by our prayers to act. Whenever we want him to and however we want him to. So the implication in the editorial was God should be fixing this. But since he's not. That means that prayers are, as one of the writers went on to talk about, meaningless platitudes. Because the assumption is if prayer really was meaningful, then God would fix this problem. And included in that is in the way that we think he should fix it. So you're praying for God to do thus and so. God has obviously not done thus and so. So prayer doesn't work. So for prayer to be judged as effective, God is obligated to answer prayer as I see fit. My question in all of this in response to that assumption is on what basis did these editors think that God should do something? Now I'm not saying I don't want him to, and I'm not saying that I I, I don't think that he is. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But do we conceive of God as just this giant genie in heaven 
And we pray to, we pray to him and it's Aladdin and the magic lamp and it's just a matter of, 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 of rubbing the lamp and the genie appears and he grants your wish. So I, I fold my hands, I bow my head and I pray my prayer and God grants my wish. And that's what prayer is and that's what God is. I pray and he is obligated. He's, 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 he's got those, those clasps on his wrists. He's got to do what I ask him to do. And he better do it exactly the way that I want him to, when I want it and how I want it, or else obviously it's, the process is broken. And again, the question in all of this is just where does the Bible ever teach that? What the Bible does say, if you're still in the book of James by chance, if you are, we were in James 5, I want to look at James 4. What the Bible actually says is there is a link between the extent to which God answers our prayers and the kind of life we're living. So James says in James 4 verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. As I understand it, that was the exact motivation, I believe, for the killings in Atlanta. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And he goes on to say just a little further down, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When the Bible talks about prayer, what it teaches is prayer is not at all like drawing money from an ATM machine. It teaches that prayer is a part of a relationship between the child of God and their father. Part of what that relationship means is that we love God, love him with all of our being, our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we give ourselves over to him. And prayer is a part of that give and take of that relationship that the Bible describes. And since that is the case, I cannot treat God as if somehow he is obligated to dispense blessings as if he's some sort of divine ATM or genie in the sky. And honestly, why would I ever think that God is going to answer my prayers if over and over again I reflect absolutely no regard for him or for his will? It's just kind of astonishing the, the people who are, are otherwise absolutely in disregard of God and who otherwise reflect no interest in God in their day-to-day -day lives suddenly expect God to come through for them and do what they want whenever they find themselves in some kind of bind. They treat prayer like a fire extinguisher. You break the glass in the event of an emergency. So you bow your head in the event of an emergency, and then the solution's there. Otherwise, I don't know if you know it or not, we actually have a fire extinguisher in the back of the building. You give a whole lot of thought to it, unless you've made it your aim to know where one of those is, so in the event of a fire you can, can sort it out, you might not have even known the thing was back there. You're in the room with it. You walk by it every time we come here, you might have forgotten it even exists back there. But in the event of a fire, 
you know we're going to go break in that glass and try to get, or I think it's got a handle, so we don't have to do that. We're modern these days. We open that door and we'll get that thing out and take care of the issue. Otherwise, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about a fire extinguisher. You realize how insulting it is to treat God like that. When I need you. Otherwise, there's, there's, that, there's that cabinet. There's that space. We don't want God nosing around in our affairs. We certainly don't want him telling us what to do. But if we get into trouble, well, then I want to be able to break that glass and grab that fire extinguisher and have him come through for me when I need him. When I need him and how I need him. And it's ridiculous. It is quite close to an ancient sort of superstitious pagan approach to, to the gods than the living and abiding God of the Bible. Which is to say this isn't much of a new problem. Um, when Jeremiah is preaching in the temple... In Jeremiah 7, he says this is exactly what Israel thought. And he speaks words that Jesus quotes when he cleanses the temple in Jeremiah 7 and verse 8. He says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? Basically, just trample the whole Ten Commandments and then come and stand before me in this house called by my name? And say, we are delivered. Only to then go on doing all these abominations. He says, has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? So just a place where where evil people can, can shelter? Is that what this place is to you? You live however you want to. And then because you walk through these doors, you think you're good to go. Fortunately... In our advanced, sophisticated uh, society, there are never any people who think that way, right? That somehow, provided I go to church every now and then, that I can live the rest of the week any way that I want to. And as long as I go to church and I think about God there, then I don't really have to think about Him any other time throughout the rest of the week. Nobody thinks that way, right? It's how ancient Israel thought in the time of Jeremiah it can still be the way we think. I don't, um, with the editors and the authors of, of that particular magazine and all the different op-eds and whatnot that have come out since, I, I don't know them. I don't regularly read their writings. But given the, the particular websites or magazines and the sort of stuff that you'll usually find in those things that's given me cause not to read them very often, I suspect a lot of those folks have expressed in, in a n- number of different editorials a, a complete disregard for some things that God has said as they have espoused other things and, and that go contrary to Scripture. And if that's the case, if the rest of their writing from time to time reflects their worldliness, why now, all of a sudden, do they think that God is supposed to come around and fix things? Again, I'm not saying I don't want us to pray that that violence like what happened in Atlanta would stop. I'm not saying that that's not what I want God to do. But that kind of idea, that you can just live however you want to live, and then in times of emergency you can pray to God and expect Him to fix this, that's not how God works. Matter of fact, about the scary reality of, of, of God's Word is that when societies ignore God, and when they suppress the truth about God, God gives them over. To their godlessness. If they're intent on being godless. And they've not considered that if God is the source of life and truth and beauty and love. 
what it's going to look like when they no longer have him in their mental awareness, then godless is what they get to be. You're familiar, I know, with Romans chapter 1. You know exactly the kind of dark picture that Paul paints for societies that decide they're going to abandon God. Now, it would be presumptuous for me to stand before you and say that, well, that's obviously what's happening in our world. That's obviously what's happening in America. All the chaos and and turmoil we see is obviously the judgment of God for rejecting him here in America. It'd be presumptuous for me to say that, to speak for God, and to act as if since God has said this is the kind of thing he will do from time to time, and it's pretty rough out there, that obviously this is his judgment. I cannot know that. But I will say it is also presumptuous for various different writers and pundits and whatnot to claim implicitly that God should be fixing the problems we face while at the same time absolutely defying and at times even purposefully avoiding any semblance of reverence and respect for him. Any any respect whatsoever for the things that he teach, which, by the way, condemn this kind of stuff. And the reality is, just plain and simple, be it on the individual level or the societal one, there are consequences when you abandon God. But then there's a third and final assumption in this headline that I think ought to be exposed and discussed. And to say, as they did, that God isn't fixing this assumes that God has not done anything and he will not do anything. And he does not intend to ever do anything about problems like violence and wickedness and evil. It is true, as we said a moment ago, God sustains us in our existence moment by moment. You and I can't do anything apart from him. God sustains us even to have the power of free will, even though we often use that free will to do things that he's expressly prohibited. But this notion that God is not fixing this, and therefore thoughts and prayers are useless, assumes that God hasn't done anything about the problem of evil, which is absolutely untrue and fundamentally against the central claim of what Bible believers, what Christians believe. So what happened in Atlanta and in, I couldn't even find an accurate tally for you of how many mass shootings there have been in this country alone since the the millennium began. Uh, Because yes, there's a different disagreements on what counts as a, as a mass shooting then also because there's just so many of them to try to tally up. All of that is evil. And all the other shootings that have taken place, they're they're just as evil as the one that happened here in in Atlanta this week. But as Christians, you and I believe that God has decisively dealt with evil at the cross. In Romans 8 and verse 3, Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So since evil is the result of sin, what the Bible says is that Jesus in his death on the cross took all of the sins of the world upon him and God has dealt with it there on the cross. Not only that, but since as passages in Colossians 2 verse 15 that we're going to read here in just a moment And other verses talk about how sin in this world is not just the result of what you and I can see around us, but also the result 
or the, the, uh, the spillover of the spiritual battle that's taking place between the forces of good and of evil. The Bible also talks about Jesus' death and resurrection as a decisive defeat of those forces. So in Colossians 2 and verse 15, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, which is to say when Jesus died on the cross. Here's the problem with all of that. Evil seems to still exist. Even though you and I believe that through the cross, God has decisively defeated evil and Satan and struck it a death blow, we still see evil all around us. Murder, violence, all the evils all the way down. We see the evils of pain and suffering, even illness and decay. And you can get frustrated. Because on the one hand, you and I confess that Jesus on the cross dealt with sin and died for sin. But on the other hand, you still see all the effects of sin all around you. Something that we've got to be careful not to assume is that the state of affairs that exists right now is the way things are always going to be. That's not what Christians believe. We not only believe that Jesus, or excuse me, God acted decisively when Jesus died on the cross. We also believe that still in the future, God is going to act in an ultimate final way to vanquish every last vestige of evil and suffering once and for all. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that just as surely as Jesus has died on the cross, he's going to come again. And right now he is reigning and in the process of putting enemies under his feet. And someday he's going to put every last enemy under his feet, even death. We live in that progressing, in that in-between period. Um, When D-Day occurred, there was a radio broadcast uh, of President Roosevelt saying the, uh, the, the prayer as the troops were disembarking. And D-Day in World War II would turn out to be the decisive turning point, the decisive victory of the Allies over the Nazis. But if you were living in 1944, especially if you were living in Western Europe, um, after June 6th, after that event you'd still see quite a lot of evil around you. Some of the the worst fighting, some of the most bitter battles, some of the most horrible atrocities of the war took place after D-Day. So if you were living at at that time, you might have thought, we haven't exactly accomplished what we set out for, have we? But as it turns out, it was the difference maker. But there was still more of a battle to be fought until the final victory when the Nazis surrendered. So you had the decisive victory. And then that final victory. But conflict in between. And I would suggest to you that that's precisely where the Bible says you and I are right now. 
If you'd been living in Western Europe, there had still very much been a war that was taking place. The world around me, from certain vantage points, looks a bit like a war zone too. On the one hand, in this world, you and I have so many mercies that come from God, we can't keep count of them. You have the, the common grace that he gives to all to send sunshine on the just and on the unjust. We have, I mean, you take your pick. The, the fellowship that we've been getting to enjoy on the Lord's Day and other times as well, uh, as we've been talking about since our, our, our numbers have been growing over the last few months, just enjoying getting to come together and sing and study and see the, 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 the faces and hear the voices of those of like precious faith. We have the comforts that God gives us, and I mean both in the spiritual sense and also the physical sense. There is the blessing of forgiveness that Jesus gives us. There's the ability, as we talked about in class this morning, to take even the most profoundly tragic event and try to find some good in it. There are all sorts of blessings that are a part of God's creation and his actions to this point. And yet at the same time, you can still see evil and wickedness in the world and still suffer pain and disease and heartbreak and death. So it feels as if we're in the midst of a war zone right now. That's exactly what the Bible says is going on. And the mistake would be for me to think that just because God has not fixed everything right this second in the way that I think he should fix it, that he's not fixing anything. Instead, what the Bible says is that through Jesus' death on the cross, he's provided the ultimate victory. As a matter of fact, our theme for this year is drawn directly from a passage that teaches this exact point. In Romans 8 and verse 31, Paul, who was someone who knew suffering well, said to the Christians there who also knew suffering, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against, any, against God's elect? It is God who justifies who then is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Again, written from someone who lived a life filled with suffering. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because I think it deserves appreciating. Those are not the words of someone who was spared suffering in all its forms. It is the faithful trust of someone who knew more suffering than many. When Paul says, keep trusting God no matter what evil you endure. If God is for us, who can be against us? Christ is certainly interceding for us. Those aren't the meaningless platitudes of someone sheltered from harm. It's the faith 
of someone who had given his life in service of the Lord, who had been confirmed as an accepted servant of God through the miracles God worked through his hands, and who despite that approval of God himself, had still been imprisoned often, had been beaten more times than he says he could keep track of, he and, and who had been near death often. Be it from the five times he was scourged by the Jews, or the three times he was beaten with rods, or when he was stoned, or shipwrecked, or lost at sea, or starving, or threatened by any number of opponents who spent years wanting him dead. Paul lived surrounded by evil. But he understood that victory in Jesus was in spite of the evil around him, not in the absence of it. That the ultimate victory was his, no matter what happened during the remaining years of his life on this earth. And that's because something the Bible also teaches us is that with Jesus' resurrection, he offers us a promise. In 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection is described as the first fruits, the first of more to come. In James 1, verse 12, James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Jesus says in Revelation 2, verse 10, to people who are about to face some extreme evil, Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. And if we have faith in Jesus and his death and his resurrection then that means we have faith there's a final victory that is yet to be won. When God will put everything right. So I want to close our study with a passage from Hebrews chapter 2. I don't have a timer up here, but I think I've probably gone a bit long, longer than is typical for me, and I thank you for your attention this morning. Hebrews 2 is extremely apropos because these people are suffering as well. The writer says in verse 8, now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that is Christ, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He says, Jesus is Lord. But you look around, you see a lot of things that are not under his lordship. You see evil and wickedness and suffering. And the Hebrew writer says, we see that. We're not blind to that. We see it. But he says, we also see something else. He says, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He says, we see Jesus, who also certainly suffered, but it was for a temporary period. And now he's been raised and crowned with glory and honor. And his point is, I know that you look around, you see everything is not fixed right now. Not everything is under Jesus' feet, as the Bible says it will be. But we do see Jesus, and we see the suffering he knew for a while, and we see what God has done in Jesus. And because we see that, we have the faith that someday, indeed, God will do the same in us. He'll make everything right. He will fix everything. So in the meantime, you and I fight the good fight of faith. And we do pray. Knowing that God is working through us and he's working with us. And that also in the interim, he provides grace. Like the fellowship of his people, the comfort of his presence, the assurance that he urges us to be faithful even when things look bad. All the many blessings God gives us to give us the strength 
to press on and the knowledge that he will always be faithful to us. Now, ultimately, the real issue for everyone who's here today is have you submitted to God? And have you submitted to what he has done in Jesus Christ to deal with that problem of sin? If you haven't, then what is it that we can do to help you? Either to become a Christian this morning, to be baptized into Jesus Christ upon faith in him and his death and his resurrection, and to turn from your sins to love him and follow him and echo out more and more of that good and godliness into this world. Or if you are a child of God, and I hope you'll be encouraged to realize that there's more of God's plan yet to come. There is still the ultimate triumph of Jesus over all enemies, even over death itself, and certainly over the violent deeds like we've seen this week. I encourage you to pray. If there is something you can do through action, I encourage you to act. I encourage you to pray. If we can help you this morning, I hope you will act and come forward and let us know while we stand and sing.